Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Heart of Flesh podcast. Uh, if you were tuned into our last episode, uh, James challenged me to sing before the throne of God above. <laughs> Let's go. Um, I am not going to do that oh. for your sake and for mine. Uh, but what I what I am going to do is I'm going to read a verse from it. Okay. Now, I'd encourage you to go look up this song. It's uh, it's a wonderful old hymn. Uh, there's my favorite version is probably by the Modern Post. It's a yeah. little bit upbeat. It's pretty good. Um, but here's the verse. <clears throat> it says this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Now that's a wonderful truth. Um, I'd encourage you guys to look up that song, listen to it. Um, I know I certainly love to. Yeah, if you want to hear a Scotsman say it in a sweet accent, uh, look up on YouTube, Alistair Begg, Man on the Middle Cross. Um, there's like a th it's three minutes, 53 seconds. Awesome video clip of just gospel truth. And you'll get to hear him say it in just a <laughs> sweet accent. Yeah, yeah. I think it's part... Th that That's kind of a famous clip, but it's part of a, a bigger sermon. Yeah. So, yeah, but there's like a five-minute five minute version out there that's really cool. Definitely would encourage you to look it up. It's called The Man on the Middle Cross by Alistair Begg. Okay. So, on to uh, the topic at hand for today. So, once again, we have been going through the doctrines of grace. We have um, kind of done our last episode on limited atonement we want to stop again and we want to address uh well really what we want to do today in this pa in this episode is to address some what you maybe would call problem passages um you know believe it or not calvinists are not the only ones who point to bible verses or bible passages um to find support for their points mm -hmm. Arminians also will do this. Um, so what we are going to do is deal with some of those most common passages that um, Arminians will point to to uh, refute the doctrines of grace or, or attempt to, um, and specifically the doctrine of limited atonement, which we laid out in the last episode. So if this is the first episode you've been here, again, we'd encourage you to go back, kind of listen to these as a series. Um, it definitely will make more sense that way. So here we go. Uh, the probably the most common passage um, that uh, the Armenians would point to to refute this doctrine of limited atonement is going to be in First John two two. And you know you're going to see just based on a very cursory reading of this, uh, it's it, it seems to be a difficult one for Calvinist to answer. But I I hope as we kind of take an in depth look at it, uh, you'll see actually, I think it's. I think it's pretty supportive of um, uh, of Calvinist theology, and I don't think that it warrants uh, that we arrive at an Arminian interpretation of it. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read it uh, straight away. So it's 1 John 2, 2, and he says this. Talking about Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So there you have it. Um, many an Arminian has looked to that verse and, and seen Calvinism defeated in, mm -hmm. in one verse. 
Um, but uh, I don't think that it's quite that simple. And we're going to try to uh, kind of look at this verse a little bit more in depth um, and analyze it. Now, the first thing is that I don't think that John's use of the word whole world um, in the Greek, it is uh, the two words are cosmos and halos. Uh, and those two words mean mean whole world. Cosmos is where we get the English word cosmos. Um, so, and you're going back to the Greek there. Yeah, yeah, that's that that's that's in the Greek. Those are the words in the Greek. Um, so, what does John? The, the big question is: Is what does John mean when he says whole world? Does he mean literally every single person in the world? Mm-hmm. Does John mean every single person literally that has ever lived? and will ever live on planet earth. And I don't think that he means that. And I think sometimes when, um, when we read the scriptures and we see words like, like all, uh, we can tend to take a, a super literal, um, interpretation of them to mean every single literal person. And that can be problematic, especially if we apply that interpretation to other parts of the Bible. And I'm going to give one example And I just want to show you maybe how this is working. This is a little bit confusing. But Mark chapter 1, verse 5, Mark starts his gospel. He talks about John the Baptist showing up. And he says this uh, in verse 5. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. That's John the Baptist. And were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So if we take the same hermeneutical approach... That we that we that Arminians want to apply to First John two two, and we apply that to Mark one five, then in, in Mark one five the word all literally means all, mm-hmm. so that would mean that Herod, Pontius Pilate, every other Jew, every other person in Jerusalem and in the country of Judea, was going out to John the Baptist, confessing their sins and being baptized by him. Now, if you if you want to picture in your head Pontius Pilate going out to John the Baptist being baptized, confessing his sins, um, that seems a little bit silly to me. And based on what we know about him in the in the Gospels, that seems pretty clear that that's not what Mark means. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in the same way, Mark is using this word "all" um, not to describe every single person literally, but to describe generally the people of Judea and Jerusalem. Now, I'm. Now, if if that's not as convincing as you'd like it to be, um, also, I, I think this is much more convincing. Later in the same epistle in 1 John, in 1 John chapter 5, 19, we find very literally the exact same phrase, the exact same two Greek words, cosmos, halos. Um, and it's in 1 John five nineteen, And it says this. John is at the very end of his epistle. He says, we know that we are from God. John talking about himself and other believers. And then he says this. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So if we take, again, if we take the exact same hermeneutical approach mm-hmm. uh, from 1 John 2.2 that the Arminians want to use there and apply it to 1 John 5.19, which has the exact same two Greek words, does this mean literally every single person? Is every single person in the power of the evil one in John's mind? No. I don't think we can possibly conclude that especially when we read the gospel of john um, and when we understand john's theology and even throughout this letter so i think there is a very clear warrant to understand um, when john says the whole world that he is not referring to literally every single person in the world Jackson, so w- one thing uh you've mentioned it twice now just hermeneutical approach 
Mm-hmm. Um, could you just define that for the listeners? Yeah. Her- <coughs> yeah. Thanks, James. That's uh, <coughs> kind of a theological term, but hermeneutics just a, is a word to describe the science of Bible interpretation. Mm-hmm. So how do we understand the Bible? How do we um, make sense of a passage? And, and the point that I'm making is if I come to 1 John 2, 2, and when I see the words whole world, I import the meaning there to, to make it say literally every single person that has ever lived and ever will live. If I apply that same approach that I took on that passage and apply it to 1 John five nineteen mm-hmm. or to Mark 1, 5, then I can't make any sense of those texts. They basically, they, like, they, they don't, they don't make any sense. Yeah. And that's just an important, like, we can avoid so much error in our theology and our doctrine if we take a consistent hermeneutical approach. And, like, something that we've been talking about this semester at, at RCI is, like, context is king. Um, and, and genre plays into that as well. Like, if you try to use the same hermeneutical approach on First Kings as you do on Revelation, historical narrative versus apocalyptic literature you're going to run into a lot of issues and things are going to be really confusing um so you need to take into account the context the genre um and we're trying to figure out what did the author intend to say to this specific audience that's what we're trying to take out of the text yeah and that's just something that's honestly just in in our culture that's really difficult i feel like we are a culture of uh, you know, you see a one Bible verse as it pops up on Facebook or we're like a verse of the day culture. Yeah. Like that, that describes American, um, and our, and our hermeneutical approach to scripture very much. Yeah. And you see people a lot of times with, you know, Bible tattoos and all this stuff. And, and <clears throat> you read the verse in context and you say, you know what, actually, I don't think that means exactly what you think it means because the, the reality about verses and, and just words in general is they exist in a context. So the meaning that applies to them is, especially in the Bible, and when we look at First John, the meaning that applies to them has, it, it, like the, the context and surrounding words, um, the surrounding argument of the author is relevant to that discussion. Yeah. So that's just... Yeah, also you can have Bible verse tattoos. We're not saying... Yeah, you, <laughs> you certainly can. But like a classic illustration of this, I just think of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, that's another, that's a perfect example again of all, all things. Yeah. Well, know? thanks, Holy Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, people take that verse to me. And like, this is definitely what I did before I really yeah, came to Christ is before a football game or a big test, I would uh, look at Philippians 4.13 and be, God, yep, help me with this test. I can do all things. Uh, I can score as many touchdowns as I want um, and be the MVP of the game. Um, but that is not what Paul is saying in Philippians 4.13. Yeah, most definitely not. So the question then um, is, is if John doesn't mean literally every single person of all time, then what does he mean by saying the words yeah. whole world? And that's a good question. And I think, I think also in this, to this point, historical context is very important as well. If you read the New Testament, the biggest controversy in the New Testament, in the apostolic age is the fact that the gospel as it is going out after the death of Jesus is not just for the people of Israel. It is a gospel for all people. The work of Christ is a worldwide enterprise. It it is not for one single ethnic group. Um, It is not for one single social class. It doesn't belong to any government or any one church. 
It didn't belong just to Israel. Uh, it didn't belong just to the church that John is writing to. It is literally a worldwide gospel. Um, and Jesus is a savior for every type of person. So I think it, it pretty clearly rev- refers to the world, not in its individuality, not as in every individual person, but the world in its totality, the, the world as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I'd, honestly, I think that is a very relevant message, even for us to hear today at this point. Especially in America, I think we can tend to have an idea that the gospel is an American thing or that it's just for American people. Mm-hmm. But the gospel and the work of Christ is not limited to one culture or one people. It is a gospel just as much for people in Pakistan, people in China, people in India, people all over the world. And I think that is really clear the point that John is making, that this is a gospel for all kinds of people, and it's a gospel, and, and it's a work of Christ that has a worldwide scope, Yeah, if that makes sense. Just as an example, and this is kind of going off on a tangent uh, of, of this, is recently, so I'm on staff with part-time Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Uh, recently, I went down to Kansas City um, for a support raising training, and, and at this conference was a couple from russia and they didn't speak a lick of english um but they were at the conference learning um the same material i was so that they could go out in russia and preach the gospel to to athletes and students and coaches in russia and at the end of the uh the conference they actually got up in front of everyone and with the translator and just shared about the glories of christ in russia and what he's done for them in their particular uh spheres and it was like one of the coolest things uh, that I've ever been a part of. And after that conference, um, like I've been telling people, the biggest thing I took away uh, was not even the material, but just how big and expansive the kingdom of God is. Mm-hmm. Like we can just think it's, oh, it's just in our little like Fargo community um, or our NDSU or in our families. But the kingdom of God and, and the gospel message is going out throughout the whole world. Yeah, and and for those Russian people, it's the same gospel. Yeah, it's the same Christ. Yeah, all of it. It it truly is a worldwide gospel. I think I think again, um, and you know we're gonna move on a bit from this argument. Uh, the point being, I hope that you understand in this that when John says whole world, we do not have to import the meaning into that. We are, we are not exegetically or hermeneutically mm-hmm. required to import the meaning um, of every single person into that sentence and i think another just point to build on that and make that clear we've mentioned the gospel of john very much throughout this uh whole series and in in the gospel of john is very clear about the fact that the work of christ that he came um, in accordance with the father and the spirit to save a particular people and in this passage in first john that we're talking about like i said i don't think we need to we need to um, or are warranted from this text to to believe that John is espousing a universal atonement for literally every single person that's ever lived. Instead, um, I think he's clearly making a point that the atonement is for all types of people. And in that sense, it is an atonement for the whole world. Not every single individual, but for all types of people. And, you know, John in the book of Revelation, again, again, there we see he makes the emphasis on uh, the fact that the blood of Christ, this is in Revelation 5, he says, 
the, the, the saints are singing to God, singing to the lamb who is Christ. And what they're saying is that you have purchased with your blood a people from every tribe, tongue, nation on earth. And even in just in that sentence, you have purchased a people. It's a particular people. Yeah. But where do they come from? The whole world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation on earth. So in, in that sense, um, the atonement is a, is a worldwide thing, but it still applies to a particular people. Uh, as we've been arguing with limited atonement. Yep. And now I think, so we, we chose this passage. This is probably the most common one. A lot of other passages that Arminians will point to is basically solved by the same thing. Um, what do we mean by all? Does it, does it literally mean every single person? There, there, so there's a number of others. You know, the other problem, <coughs> kind of moving on to our next point here. The other problem with this text is that, you know, the Arminian will say to the Calvinist that you don't take this text seriously or you don't take it at face value. Now, I think in our last point, we've at least refuted that idea or at least given much cause to reconsider mm -hmm. what this text might actually be saying. Um, and I'm going to make the argument uh, that it's actually the Arminians who are not taking this text at full face value. And the reason I'm going to do that is because of John's use in this text, in this verse of the word propitiation. So I'm going to read the text one more time. It says, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, propitiation is not a word that we often use in our day. Um, so <laughs> we probably don't really know what it means. I think we covered it a bit in our, in our last episode, yeah. but the idea uh, of the word propitiation has to do with the wrath of God being satisfied or, or being spent like it, like it's completely gone and absorbed, um, and the idea is that God uh, sent forward Christ to be a propitiation for our sins, that He would actually come and by His sacrifice He would satisfy the wrath of God against our sins, and He would completely absorb it, so that when we, and, and the point of this, and again we mentioned this last time, but this is the good news of the gospel, when we look at the cross of Christ we can have confidence that there is nothing left for us for our sin, but, but only the grace in God, mm -hmm. only the blessing of God, because Christ actually satisfied it. Not, and he didn't do that generally, but he did that personally for us. It was my sin. When I look at the cross, I can say that my sin has been dealt with by Christ. So um, I think that, so you know, what go ahead, James. I don't know if you got to the what you're drawing out there is it, in the text it says the propitiation of the whole world and so the Arminian yeah right. right right yeah that's the point so again if, if we understand the meaning of the word propitiation mm -hmm. uh, th that would mean that the wrath of God is actually satisfied um, for the sinner now if John is meaning to say that Jesus was a propitiation in that sense for every single person, literally, yeah. then it's like we talked about it last episode, you have no choice but to go all the way to universal salvation, meaning that every single person, regardless of repentance, regardless of faith in Christ, will ultimately be saved. Yeah, or you come into double jeopardy, jeopardy like yep. we said last time. I even see your little note here. It says, if you paid my loan, the bank... bank uh, can't then come and charge me again for the same amount. Yeah. Um, that would be double jeopardy. God cannot punish the sin 
uh, of the whole world on Christ, propitiating his wrath, being satisfied, expiating the sins of the world, and then again send the sinner to hell. So you either have to violate the justice of God or you have to say that all people are saved. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the idea. And, and the illustration you gave um, or that we have here, I think it's exactly right. Uh, you, you think of if I if I have a loan for... Well, my, my loan to God would be basically an infinite amount based on my sin. But Amen. let's say, for, for example, I had a loan of $10,000. If someone came and paid the bank $10,000 for me, mm-hmm. the bank cannot then take that $10,000 um, on my account and then come and charge me again another $10,000. That's kind of the point. So if Christ is truly a propitiation for our sins... If Christ was really a substitute for us, um, then the the only way to avoid particular atonements or limited <coughs> atonement, definite atonement, is to become a universalist, mm-hmm. and that that is contrary to scripture. Contrary to scripture. Yeah. So, and I think just logically and, and um, what really arises out of the scriptures that if you're going to hold the universal atonement, you really have two options. Um, one is is to actually become a universalist, which is completely out of outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy, um, outside the bounds of Scripture, or you have to do something else with the atonement. Mm-hmm. You you have to get rid of the substitutionary nature of it. Uh, you have to get rid of the um, propitiatory nature of it as well. It, it it has to be for something else other than Christ actually paying for sin. Now that's the clear witness of the Scriptures. Um, but there, there has been a number of people throughout history and even now who are going that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, that's pretty blatantly a denial of uh, biblical authority. Um, it's also a denial of orthodox Christian theology. So <coughs> that is that passage. Um, I think we're going to leave that at that. Like I said, uh, there's a number of other passages that people will point to. I think they mostly boil down to the same I- a lot of them a lot of them boil down to the same idea yeah i would say so um who is the all that we're talking about uh does that mean literally every person um yeah so so i would encourage you guys uh if, if you're reading you come across more passages um yeah do some research on them look at them consider um is that what the author is is actually saying in those cases now the second one uh second problem passage that we wanted to deal with and this one is maybe not um super (coughs) relevant just to limited atonement um but i think i think people will use this to try to refute just the doctrines of grace in general um if that makes sense so (coughs) you know we thought this would be another good time to just address that here um and the verse that i'm going to be going to is first timothy and it's chapter two and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And again, this is more about um, trying to refute the doctrines of grace than just limited atonement specifically. But I'm going to read it. Um, so this is Paul writing to Timothy. He says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And here's the key point. 
who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, um, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Okay. So that is another similar passage, um, and there's two points in there. Again, in one place, Paul says, uh, in verse, let me see, in verse 6, um, Jesus is the one mediator between God and men who gave himself as a ransom for all. Um, I think that is essentially covered in our last argument. The part that we're going to be focusing on, on is verse 4, uh, which says that it is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Um, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, there is a similar passage in Second Peter that people will point to. Um, it says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Um, that passage is highlighting God's patience in judgment. Um, okay, so back to, back to this passage. Um, so, like I said, it's verse 4. That is really the one. It says that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So, um, I think now, now people will use that to against the whole doctrines of grace, the whole scheme of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, the idea is that God is really desiring, really trying to save all people, um, but He can't really do it. He's not really effective. Um, it doesn't really depend on Him. You know, it actually depends on man. Man has to make the first step. Um, all this kind of stuff kind of gets imported into this verse. Um, <clears throat> one thing just to note very specifically, I think that the context of this passage um, makes things very clear. Uh, and it just brings a lot of clarity to the discussion. So Paul, in verse 4, or in verse 3, he says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. So what Paul is doing is he is grounding uh, his his command to Timothy in, in verses one and verses two by saying that it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior uh, who desires all people to be saved. <coughs> and the command in verses one and two from Paul to Timothy is that supplications and prayers and intercessions would be made for all people for Kings and all who are in high positions. So that we, um, that is the, the church, you know, God's people just generally, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Um, yeah, so I honestly, I, I think that the context in this is making clear uh, that this is more about, again, types of people than it is literally every single person. So Paul, by saying that he, he's commanding that prayers be made for kings, for all who are in high positions... Those are specific types of people that he is highlighting so that um, Christians would be able to live in peace. And he's grounding that in the fact, um, verse 3, what he says, this is good, it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So when Paul says all people, Mm -hmm. again, I don't think we need to import the idea of literally every single person when in the immediate context, Paul is distinguishing a specific type of person Mm -hmm. in the same way just part of our conversation earlier um what we can clearly deduce from this passage is that 
God does, God certainly desires all types of people to be saved. It is the the gospel is for kings. It is for those in high places. It is for the lowest beggar. It is for anyone in the middle class. Uh, it transcends all of those things. Okay. Um. And the the real question then, uh, is is well, it's kind of the question I had earlier. Is God desiring something in this passage that he is trying to accomplish but can't do it? Mm-hmm. That's really the question. Is God desiring something that he is unable to accomplish? Um, and the assumption behind that is that the thing that God is desiring is a universal salvation of literally every single person. That's kind of the assumption behind that. Behind that, and so if God, um, who is sovereign, we believe that God is omnipotent, that God has the power to do that. If God really is desiring a universal salvation, then the question is, why does that not happen? Because the scriptures are very clear that there will not be a universal salvation. So if this text is saying that God actually desires a universal, complete salvation of every single person, why does that not happen? And I think one thing that everybody agrees on here uh, and that we have to understand is that it is possible to desire one thing and not do it because there is something else that you desire more. Does that make sense? You can desire one thing and not do it because there's something else that you desire more. Now, here's an illustration of that. You, if you're like me, you might really desire to eat ice cream. Mm, Every time you see ice cream, you probably really desire to eat it. Now, why, James, would you not eat a tub of ice cream every time that you see one? Well, a couple of different reasons. I don't want to get fat. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get sick for you eating a whole tub. Um, I don't want my wife to make fun of me. Uh, yeah, the list goes on and on. So there's something that you <coughs> desire more than just eating ice cream. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the point I'm getting at. It is possible to, to desire one thing. Um, but to desire something more and not to do that thing. So, um, and this is where Calvinists and Arminians both agree. There is something that God desires more than to save every single person that's ever lived. Yeah. There's something that God desires more. And what the Arminian will say is that that's something that God desires more than universal salvation is for humans to have free will and when i say the word free will i mean free will as arminians define it um and they would argue that god wills that more than universal salvation now our free will as arminianism defines it i don't think is very biblical Mm. because it has no reference to god or his plans or his purposes uh and really in that sense man is is able to overcome God's purposes, um, because God can't really be be sovereign in their view of free will, uh, because that that would make man not free. Mm. Now the Calvinist, on the other hand, um, holds to a biblical view of free will, which is that humans are free to make choices; they're morally responsible. Uh, but ultimately, um, also God is completely sovereign. But the Calvinist says that God's greater desire is not the free will of men, but his greater desire is the manifestation of his glory, mm. ultimately. That is the greatest good. 
is the glory of God being manifested and, and shown and displayed. And his glory is manifested mostly in, 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 the, in the greatest possible way in a combination of his mercy, which is wonderful and gracious, and also in his righteous and good justice and judgment against sin, which also <coughs> will redound to the glory of God. So on that day, when God, uh, when Christ comes back and God judges all things, the glory of God will be on display manifestly in his grace and his mercy, also in his just and good judgments against sin. And um, <coughs> God has, God has, the point being that God has set up salvation history and history in general to display both his wonderful and amazing <coughs> mercy and his just and perfect judgments. Yeah, and so we, like that just rubs us the wrong way, um, especially in like our postmodern enlightened culture. Um, but we need to recognize that God can do whatever God wants to do. Um, and he's created this universe to display his attributes and to bring glory to his name. <clears throat> and so part of that is redeeming a particular people mm -hmm. to show his grace and his mercy and judging a particular people to show his wrath and his justice. Um, yeah, you could think of Pharaoh. Um, yeah. You know, in the Exodus account, and Paul gets gets uh, onto the same point in Romans 9, you know, God, God was <coughs> was not using Pharaoh. Um, he, he, he was not working in Pharaoh. Uh, like, like the Arminian view of this text mm -hmm. would say that God desired the salvation of Pharaoh. That is not the way the, that the Exodus account or Romans 9 puts it. It actually <coughs> poses, it actually puts up Pharaoh um, as someone who was radically opposed to God, who was exalting himself in every way against God, and as someone that God uh, actually hardened and determined not, not to save him, but actually to display his judgment in the world against him so that his name might be known to all the nations. So in that sense, God... If you read the Exodus account, God is, is particularly saving the Israelites. But when it comes to the person of Pharaoh, who was standing opposed to God, exalting himself against God, God didn't work for the salvation of Pharaoh. I mean, he, he certainly um, didn't coerce Pharaoh or manipulate him. Uh, but it is very clear, as in Romans 9, it says, For this very reason I have raised you up, that I might make my name known in all the earth. So even just looking at historical biblical examples... It's just impossible to import that theology into the Bible. Yeah, and then after Paul gives this long explanation of the sovereignty of God and salvation and even human responsibility, he throws up his hands and he says in Romans uh, eleven thirty three, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his, are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord? or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Uh, and so we can't sit back here as the created beings, the creatures, and look to the creator and say, why have you made it like this? Why have you made me like this? 
Um, we have no right to say that to the all powerful um, creator of the universe. Um, and I, I think of a quote, I can't remember if this is the first American gospel or the second and who exactly said it, but he said, why would I believe in this God if I can make up a better one in my head? Yeah, it was Rob Bell. And I think it was a different, I think it was a different guy. Bart, something Bart. Bart something. No, you're thinking of Carl Bart. Mm, I can't remember. Who was dead a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember exactly, but like the arrogance, I mean that you see that in Genesis like two and three, that's what happens in the garden. Yeah. That's the, that's, <clears throat> that is like the epitome of sinful <clears throat> human pride. Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent point. And so I think it's just important in this discussion. Um, we want to take out, we want to exalt the biblical God mm-hmm. um, and his attributes and who he is. Um, and we can't let our autonomy and our feelings um, and our own ideas of who God is supposed to be like dictate what we believe about God. We need to go to the scriptures. Yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't, <coughs> we don't get to create a God in our own image. Um, our job is not to do that. Our job is <coughs> to to pursue and love and worship the God who exists and yeah. has revealed Himself to us. Now. <coughs> Also, just uh, again, I want to go back to this. So what, what is Paul saying in this text then? If he's not saying uh, that God desires universal salvation and he's just not able to accomplish it, then what is Paul saying? Well, I think, again, um, what, what we have to understand is that our job is not to, like when we look out at the world, I don't, I don't, I, I don't have access to God's eternal and secret decree that God hasn't revealed to me. When I look out at the world, I don't know uh, who's going to be saved and who's not. What I do know is, as Paul says here, God desires generally the salvation of people. Generally, God desires the salvation of people. So what is that? What should that lead me to do? And this is the, the point of this passage. Well, that should lead me to pray for all people. That should lead me to share the gospel with all people. Um, and, and that should lead me to show benevolence to all people and the way that I act toward them, to seek their good mm-hmm. uh, and to love them as, as God has loved me. Um, and I think that is really at the heart of what Paul is getting at in this passage. He's not teaching that God desires a universal salvation, that he's not able to accomplish it, um, but he is teaching that God desires generally uh, for people to be saved. And he has not revealed that to us. And so our job is to pray for people. Mm. Our job is to share the gospel with people. Um, our job in the church is to raise up faithful pastors who are going to preach the gospel to people. Um, and that is our job. And when even on this question, um, when I think about praying for people, uh, I'm just like, it is so much more fitting in my mind for a Calvinist who believes that God is sovereign over salvation <laughs> to get on his knees and to pray to God for a person's soul. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. Um, but believing that God is able actually to do that sovereignly. Yeah. And the push, the pushback is, well, if you believe in a God who's fully sovereign, why do you pray? Why do you evangelize? But it, that's the very reason we should, <laughs> that God's in ultimate control and has the power to do whatever he wills and wishes. That is the foundation of, 
why I can pray to God and expect things to happen and why I should evangelize mm -hmm. um, and expect things to happen. Yeah. And, and on the flip side, you know, for the Armenian who doesn't believe that, that God or, or believes that God is unjust to interfere with people or that he's not really in control of, of people's souls. Uh, I, it just doesn't make sense to me how, how you could be praying to God for other people and for their salvation. It just if if you're not praying to a sovereign God, um, then what is the reason that you're praying for, or what are you accomplishing in prayer? Um. So the last thing I just wanted to touch on really briefly, and I think this kind of flows from our our last uh, last uh, little segment there. Um. I think one of the questions when we talk about limited atonement is what does it mean then um, when we're sharing the gospel with people or we're telling them about the cross of Christ, um, how should we go about doing that? Um, if the cross really was not ultimately for all people, uh, then how does it make sense for us to go and share the gospel with all people? Mm. Well, the first thing that we need to understand on that question is, like I said, it has not been given to us to know everything about God's will. Um, it has not been given to us to know every person that will be saved or that will not be saved. So, as we read in Scripture, very clearly, we are commanded by God uh, to go and to preach the gospel to all people and to trust that that will be the means that God will use in order to save. And yeah, I mean, that, that's what we have. When we, we are also going to people, um, and we are declaring to them on the issue of limited atonement, we are declaring to them a cross that actually works. Uh, we're declaring to them the cross of Christ that actually saves, that actually pays for the penalty of sin, um, and actually is able to free them from the power of <coughs> sin as well. We declare a cross that was effective and that works, and we declare a Jesus that is not just trying his best but a Jesus, as he says in Matthew 28, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And um, a Jesus that has been given a people by the Father that he will draw to himself and that he will raise up on the last day. That is the Jesus that we are proclaiming to people. Yeah, and we can truly and honestly say and, and proclaim to people with John 3.16 um, 17 and 18 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life jumping down to verse 18 whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God so we can proclaim that if you believe in Christ your sins can be truly and finally forgiven and expiated from you cleansed from you the wrath of God on you can be propitiated and satisfied and you be given a righteousness from Christ that is not your own. Um, yeah. And, and we can be sincere in doing that. Yeah. And I think that's the point you're making. I, we can sincerely to every person <clears throat> that we come across say, look, if you know, we invite you to repent of your sins and to trust yeah. in Christ from your salvation and that, that if you, that you will be saved. Yeah. It's not like, uh, Share the gospel with someone, then be like, uh, if you're elect, you'll believe. See you later. Right, <laughs> right. And we, we would, like, certainly that's not the case, but we understand that God uses means. Um, and we can say, you know, I think of this, one of my favorite verses in, I think it's in John chapter 7. Um, 
yeah, you just you just see you see Jesus doing this exact same thing. And again, this is in the Gospel of John where it's very clear uh, that Jesus is working with the Father to save a particular people. Mm-hmm. But I'm just going to read in John seven thirty seven. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So this is a call for salvation that Jesus is issuing to all people, (coughs) genuinely inviting all people, come to me and be saved. And we can also genuinely hold out that promise. Um, yeah, we can hold out this uh, John six thirty seven. I'm looking at this too. And y- n- even notice just the language of this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Okay. Uh, well, how are we to read that any other way than through the doctrines of grace? And then the second half of that sentence. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Mm. So we can hold out that promise to people sincerely. Yeah. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Um, and, and yet, as Jesus said just before that, um, all that the Father gives me will come. And whoever does, will he will never cast out. So we hold both of those things together. And, and like Christ, we are uh, pr- proclaiming salvation to all people. Agreed. And I think it's it should motivate us that there's God's elect out there. Um, and we should be seeking out and declaring the gospel to all people looking for those lost sheep. And we can know that if someone comes to a true and saving faith in Christ, they were part uh, of God's elect. Um, and that should give us confidence and boldness. And it's not like we, like, I can't remember who said this. Like, it's not like, we can go to people and say, Hey, lift up your shirt. And there's a big E on your like belly that says elect. Yeah. We have no idea. Um, and so therefore we are commanded to go out and preach it to all people. Yeah. It was Charles Spurgeon. Okay. Uh, some, somebody (coughs) asked him, and if you know Charles Spurgeon, he's a famous Baptist preacher in, in England in the 19 or 1800s. Um, (coughs) and he was a Calvinist and someone asked him, you know, if you're a Calvinist, why do you preach to everybody? And he yeah. says, and his basic, basically his answer was, well, if I could open up, if I could lift up their shirt and see an E stamped on them, then I would only preach to them. Yeah. But that's just not true. <laughs> um, so we preach to all people and yeah. we sincerely um, offer the gospel to all people um, and sincerely tell them, look, if you come to Christ, uh, repent of your sins, trust in him for your salvation, um, you'll be saved. And, and that's a wonderful reality. Um, and yet in the midst of that, uh, God is, is doing a sovereign work. Um, so that's pretty much everything that we wanted to cover in this episode. I hope it's been helpful. Um, even just, even if it's just been helpful in, in, uh, looking at biblical hermeneutics, um, and just understanding more about Bible interpretation. Um, yeah, that's good. I, I hope that you guys would be looking into these passages, asking yourselves these questions, and again, as we always pray, uh, we do pray that this would be a, a, a blessing for you guys wherever you're at and that this would make you ask serious questions um, and would drive you to search and study the scriptures. Yeah, and to praise God. Like I, like I say every episode, I feel like, is, is proper theology should lead to doxology. Um, examining these doctrines, um, searching them, um, searching the depths of the riches of the glory of God in these should bring us to praise God 
to lift up our hands and exalt him highly and thank him for salvation and the work that he's done in this world. Uh, it should long for us to be with him in eternity. Um, and it should motivate us to go out into every corner of the earth preaching the good news of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys again for tuning in. 50 uh, minutes. Uh, this is around 50 maybe. 48. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> probably around 50. That's pretty good. Not too bad. Well, again, thank you guys for tuning in. Um, we're glad that you joined us. Uh, we'll be praying for, for all who would listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And hopefully you'll be tuning in again. Thanks. Thanks.